1 John chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. Give ear to the word of God this morning. John writes, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Well, let's pray and ask God's blessing upon his word this morning. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your holy word. We thank you that you give it to us as a lamp to our feet, a light to our path, that you even tell us in your word that you sanctify us by your truth. It's in your word that we know and where you have revealed the way of eternal life through faith in your son, Jesus Christ. And so we ask once again that you might be in your kindness and mercy to us, that you might fill us with your Holy Spirit. Teach us your word this morning. Be with me as I speak and be with everyone who listens. Give us by your spirit eyes to see and ears to hear great things from your word. For it's in Christ's name and for his glory that we pray. Amen. Well, if you were here, I think a couple weeks ago, uh, we started to kind of unpack this uh, profound passage of scripture. Uh, and at that time, we focused our attention on, on uh, what John tells us in the first couple of verses, mostly about the greatness of the love of God towards us in Jesus Christ, especially that grace uh, in which he adopts us as his children, and also that grace of the new birth, uh, where we are born again by his Holy Spirit. Those are the the outworkings of the love of God that John focuses our attention on in, in this passage. Uh, in verse 1, John all but tells us that this great love of God for sinners like us is, is basically incomprehensible to us. We can't really get our minds and hearts wrapped around it uh, as much as we would like to. Uh, it's so lofty we can't, help, can't really uh, hope to fully understand it. And if we're honest, uh, all of us really are hard-pressed to even begin to appreciate it the way that we should. Like it's, e- it's easy to talk about these things uh, in, in some ways, but it's very hard to really appreciate them the way that we know that we should. Uh, but the better that you and I understand and appreciate, even in some small measure, the reality of these truths that John is talking about in our text, these gospel truths of what God has done for us in Christ by his great love for us, the more we appreciate and understand these truths, the more life-transforming and even sanctifying that we will find that they become in us. And that's really John's goal here. It's really his point of what he is talking about to us in this text. John, John has a very practical end in mind here. John isn't just talking you know, in ethereal terms you know, that don't have any impact or, or effect or aim in our lives. Uh, in reminding us about the love and grace of God in our adoption in Christ as God's children, in reminding us of the new birth by his spirit by which we are born of God. Uh, His goal in all these things, as really in all the scripture, is that you and I, in coming to faith in Christ, might might more and more learn to live for God through Christ and by the work of his spirit. That's really the goal of all. It should be the goal of all Christian teaching, period. It's not just for its own sake. It's not just that we might have our heads filled with knowledge so that we might learn more and more uh, to live for God. Back, back in the previous chapter, the very end of chapter 2, verse 29, John told us this. He said, if you know that he, that's God, if you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. And so 
that's still, you know, sometimes you have to kind of not spend too much time thinking about the, the chapter divisions in your Bibles and the verse numbers. Our text is still kind of expanding on that, the truth in that verse. John is still explaining, or you could even say he's commenting on what he said in that verse in our text. He's explaining what he meant there here in chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. Now, why is it, you know, if John's going to say that everyone, uh, everyone who practices or does righteousness has been born of him, of God, why is that the case? Why is it that those who have really been born of God practice righteousness? That's what he's going to explain to us in some ways in our sermon text this morning. It's because of the new birth by the Holy Spirit. Uh, that new birth being born again as God's children has a transformative effect on us. It's really the same kind of logic that Paul uses in Romans chapter 6. When, remember in Romans 6, I'll give you like a brief uh, thumbnail sketch of Romans up to, up to the end of chapter 5, Paul is talking about uh, our need for Christ, what God has done to save us in Christ through justification and imputation, all these things. And he, he basically tells us there's, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. He says that later on. Uh, but chapter 6, it's like the person listening to the gospel, the great news of the gospel says, well, wait a minute. If that's true, then I can just live however I want. And Paul says, no, no, no. You know, I, you know, you you shall say to me then, why shall we not continue in sin that grace may abound? In other words, if if grace abounds even more where sin abounded, why not just sin more? And Paul says, you can't. In fact, he says, how can we or how shall we who who died to sin live any longer in it? The implication is, you can't. Why? Because you're born again. You're a new creation in Christ. It's impossible that your old life might continue the way that it is. Those who, who are born again, who are born of God, cannot help but begin to show the family likeness or resemblance, being more and more in this life conformed to the image of Christ, until at long last when Christ returns in glory, what does he say in verse 2? We shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. God is not content to leave us wallow in our sins until Christ returns and then just flip a switch and transform us, he starts it in the here and now by that new principle of life, by the, the, the new birth of the Holy Spirit uh, in each one who, who believes. So we're going to spend uh, this morning, Lord willing, we're going to spend most of our time in verse 3 of our text. We'll touch on the rest of it as well, but we're going to focus more on verse 3. And what does John say there? He says, And everyone who thus hopes in him, that's hopes in Christ, does what? purifies himself even as he is pure. I couldn't help but think of, of this when, when Rob was reading the text in Joshua 3. You know, say, I know the ESV says consecrate yourselves. It's really sanctify yourself. Sanctify yourself because God's going to do something amazing among you. He's going to do wonders among you today. So sanctify yourselves. Set yourself apart uh, for God and watch what God, what God does. So um, he, tells, he tells him, everyone who thus hopes in him purifies, it's not the same word as sanctifies, but it's really the same idea. Sanctifies or purifies himself as he is pure. And what is John's point there? He's saying that is true of everyone who hopes in Christ. Everyone who believes in Christ and has set their hope upon him uh, is going to purify themselves even as Christ is pure. They're going to seek in some measure to conform themselves to Christ's image in the here 
and now. So everyone who's a child of God through faith in Christ and has been born again will seek to purify themselves uh, more and more in this life. So the first thing I'd like us to look at this morning that maybe we don't spend a lot of time thinking about, and we, it's really a subject we can only kind of scratch the surface of, but we'll do our best, is the Christian hope. What is this hope that John is pointing us to and saying is supposed to have this purifying and transforming effect? Well, if we're going to have this transforming effect, I think part of, of what we need to do is understand just what the Christian hope is especially the aspects of it that John is referring to here in our text. What, what exactly is John talking about when he says, everyone, you know, verse 3, everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Uh, first, things, first things first, as we saw when we looked at this text a couple Sundays ago, uh, John is, is clearly speaking of our hope in Christ. It, it, some translations kind of muddy the waters a little bit, and they say, whoever has this hope in himself, that's not what, what John is saying. Uh, really, if you wanted to uh, kind of woodenly, in a wooden literal way, translate the text, which doesn't always sound good in English, he really is saying, everyone who thus hopes upon him. And that makes it clear that the him is not us, it's not the believer ourself, ourself it's Christ himself that we are hoping Upon. So he, he's not saying that everybody who has this hope within himself will purify himself, although that is true. Uh, what he's talking about is he's saying everyone who hopes this way in Christ will purify himself, even as he, Christ, is pure. And so the in him that John's speaking of is in, in or upon Christ. That's, and that's really the first thing. It may sound very basic and elementary, and that's okay to be reminded of, of simple elementary truths. We often very, very much need that. Sometimes we need to be reminded of things, not necessarily new things we need to be taught, but the things we've heard before but maybe have lost sight of. The first thing that we need to understand about the Christian hope is that the Christian hope, by definition, is a very Christ-centered hope. As a Christian, our hopes are centered all in Jesus Christ first and foremost. He is the very essence and source of our salvation. He is the very essence and source himself of every blessing related to our salvation that we associate with it. All the blessings that you and I have as believers in Christ, we will have one day, or the ones we have now, they are all things we have only in Christ. Now Paul, uh, Paul says very much the same thing, if you remember this passage in the first chapter of, of the book of Ephesians. I won't read the whole, the whole passage, but Ephesians 1, 3 through 14 uh, some commentators say it's like the longest run-on sentence in the history of Scripture. You know, like Paul just can't stop. You know, like Rob talks about getting on a roller or whatever. Like Paul's just go, go, go. Like he, he can't even stop for punctuation practically. You know, it's like one thing after another, after another, after another. But this is what he says in the beginning of that passage in Ephesians 1, 3. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, here it is, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So there's the header. Paul says, every spiritual blessing we have, God has blessed us with. But what's those two words he uses? He's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And then if you read, and I'll let you do this on your own. This will be your homework for the Lord's Day afternoon. If you read the rest of those verses, the rest of that passage, he doesn't just use the word in him. But he uses other phrases, in Christ, in the Lord, all through that passage. Every one of these blessings he talks about that we get 
uh, from God in our salvation. Paul says it's all in Christ. And, and the very first one, I won't dwell on it, uh, but just to give you an example. Verse 3, every spiritual blessing given to us in Christ. Verse 4, what's the first blessing that Paul mentions? It may sound kind of strange to our ears if we're not used to hearing it. The first blessing that Paul mentions that we have in Christ is something uh, that we sometimes talk about. We talk about election, predestination. Look what he says. He says, verse 4, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. So what's the, if you want to talk chronological order, so to speak, what's the first blessing that we have in Christ that God has lavished upon us? Choosing to save us before day one. Before God even laid the foundation of the world, he set his love and grace upon those whom he was going to save. And what does that mean? It shows it really is all of grace. God didn't foresee anything in us that, you know, oh, well, so-and-so is going to be better than so-and-so, so I'll pick them. No, there's no such thing. He set his love upon us before he made us, before he made anything. It was part of his blessed decree. That's the first blessing we have. It's the first blessing of God's grace that we have. In other words, when we hear those words that even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him, we should say to ourselves, I don't deserve any of this. That God should set his love upon us before the foundation of the world should be mind-boggling to us. It's, it's, no, it's no mystery why Paul says it the way he does. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, uh, of our Lord Jesus Christ, because he's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in him. And so the Christian hope is a hope that is first and foremost a hope that is founded upon Christ Jesus himself. All the blessings of salvation that are ours as believers are, are ours in Christ alone. Whether that be election, verse 4, redemption, justification, adoption, sanctification, glorification, all these big $10 words, all those things are ours only in Christ alone. Being in the presence of the Lord in heaven forever, even that is only in Christ alone. We are blessed with all of those things and even things beyond that but we're blessed with all those things only in Christ. Secondly, and we're just touching on a few things. There's so much more that could be said. Secondly, the Christian hope is not a worldly hope. It is not an uncertain hope. In fact, you know, in, in, uh, in our regular use of the word hope isn't really the same way the scripture uses it. You know, we, we often say, uh, you know, just like you can think of any, any kind of example, the way you use the word hope in a regular conversation. Oh, I hope it isn't too hot today. Oh, I hope this Santa Ana wind goes away. Oh, I hope the Phillies don't choke in the playoffs and not go to the World Series. That hope disappointed me quite a bit recently. You know, uh, pick anything we say. Oh, I hope so and so has a you know smooth flight. Oh, I hope, 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 hope. Those kind of, that kind of use of the word hope is a, you know, kind of cross your fingers sort of thing. That's not what the Scripture means when it says a hope. The Christian hope is not that kind of hope. It's not crossing your fingers. Uh, and, and hoping that maybe Jesus will save you. It's a certain and sure hope. And that is, is in many ways because it's a hope, as we already said, that is founded and built only on Christ. All worldly secular hopes will let you down, but any hope that's, that's on Christ alone will not disappoint. The Apostle Peter puts it this way in 1 Peter 1, verses 3 through 5. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, According to his great mercy, here it is, 
he has caused us caused us to be born again to a living hope. Born again to a living hope. How? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept or guarded, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. That's the Christian hope. And it's a hope that's found, it's a living hope because it's founded on a living Savior who was raised from the dead. Uh, and so it's because Christ has been raised from the dead that we have an inheritance that is what? Imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept or guarded in heaven for you. And then what does he even say? It's not just that your inheritance is kept and guarded. You yourselves as believers are kept and guarded. He says you who by God's power are being guarded or kept through faith. What does that even say about your faith? It's kind of a mind, it's almost like another sermon, I won't drift off on it, but kept by the power of faith. How, how is that possible? Because God is keeping you by that faith. Who is working that faith in you to believe so that you are kept by it? God is. Calvin said the principal work of the Holy Spirit is faith. Working faith in you and I as believers from start to finish. That's why our salvation, Paul says, is from faith to faith. From faith from first to last. So our hope in Christ is a living hope because our hope is in Christ who has been raised from the dead. And again, that is why your inheritance is undefiled, imperishable, and kept by the power of God in heaven for you. Who is also guarding and keeping you by that same power in Christ. Thirdly, the hope, or at least the aspect there's lots of different aspects of the Christian hope that John could have touched on. But the one that he is touching on most explicitly in our text this morning, the one he has in mind in these verses, has to do primarily with our sanctification. It has to do with our being conformed to the image of Christ. That is a very common theme, especially in the New Testament epistles, not just of John, but of Paul and Peter uh, as, as well. There is a very close connection between verses 2 and and three. So I'm going to read them again together and emphasize uh, what, what I think is pertinent here. Look again at verses two and three. John says, Beloved, we are God's children when? Now. And what we will be, uh, we're not what we are, we're going to be yet. What we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he, you know, he doesn't just say when it does appear. He says when he appears, when Christ appears, we shall what? We shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And then he adds the word and, showing the connection between two and three. As if that's not enough, he says, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself even as he is pure. So what aspect of the Christian hope does John have in mind when he says whoever has this hope thus hopes in him will purify himself? The hope he's talking about is the hope about Christ's return. That one day when Christ returns, when he comes again in glory, we shall be like him because we shall see him finally as he is. That is a, a great part of the Christian hope. Maybe we don't think about it very much, but we should. It's a part of our salvation that's yet future that we should be thinking about and, and cherishing in our hearts very much, probably more than many of us do. Um, 
is, is being conformed to Christ's image, being, being perfectly conformed to and made like him, part of your hope? Is it something that you, that you long for and look forward to when you think of, of, of your future in heaven? When you think of Christ's return, is that part of what you think about? That you'll no longer struggle with temptation and sin. You'll no longer, when Christ returns and you're made like him because you see him as he is, you'll never sin again. You know, I, I think it's a mark of Christian maturity and growth that we all, hopefully, you know, still, we, we know we still need. You know, very often, when we're young in the faith, I think we tend, many of us tend to be more um, grieved by the, the miseries that attend sin. You know, sin brings with it miseries. Our own sin, other people's sin, sin in general is where, is where all the misery and death and all these things that, that, that happen in this world come from. And I think when we're young in the faith, we're kind of beset by the, by the misery that comes along with sin, not so much by the sin itself. Or maybe we're, we're more aggravated by other people's sins than our own. But when, the, more, the older you are in the faith, the more you're growing in grace and growing in the faith, I think you begin to see your own sin as the problem more than other people's sin. And the more you long for and look forward to that day when you will no longer ever struggle with sin, when temptation will not be an issue, when there will be nothing to mar your fellowship with God and with your fellow believers in Christ. Do you look forward to that when you think of Christ's return? Do we think much about that at all? You know, some, uh, some unfortunately, who profess faith in Christ, I think, only seem to be concerned with the forgiveness of their sins and avoiding the penalty of sin, which is death, condemnation, and hell. There are many who call themselves believers who think nothing of holiness, who think nothing of being conformed to Christ's image and sanctification, much less glorification. And those things, you know, sanctification, glorification, all these things, they are just as much a part of your salvation as justification is. You know, if, I, I know I mention this from time to time, the shorter catechism, I, I like to, to bring these things up sometimes. Uh, shorter catechism talks about justification. I won't recite the whole thing. But it says it's an act of the free grace of God by which he pardons our sins and accounts us righteous in his sight only for Christ's righteousness. So it's an act of God's grace. And then in question 35, and you can look these up on your own for your homework this afternoon, it says, what is sanctification? It doesn't say sanctification is what you do in response, does it? There's some truth to that maybe, but it says sanctification is the, the work of God's free grace. It's still, it's still God's grace. It's still a gift to you and part of your salvation that Christ purchased on the cross and with his resurrection. He purchased not only the forgiveness of your sins and the sure hope of heaven, but also your sanctification and glorification as, as well. That's, uh, you know, worse yet, uh, some preachers actually preach as if repentance and sanctification were not necessary unto salvation, as if holiness and sanctification were somehow optional for those who, who claim the name of Christ. And I would say, as someone else has put it, such who preach that way, they preach half a Savior, they, they pick and choose the offices and works of Christ, uh, and, and half a Savior saves no one. We should not preach half a Savior the way that some do. In his classic book, which I recommend to you, to your reading, uh, the English Puritan writer Walter, Walter Marshall has a classic book called The Gospel Mystery of Sanctification. I commend it to you. It's not very long. 
It's not a hard read. It's a very edifying read. But he says this of people like this. He says, What a strange kind of salvation do they desire that care not for holiness. They would be saved and yet altogether be dead in sin, aliens from the life of God, bereft of the image of God, deformed by the image of Satan, his slaves, and vassals to their own filthy lusts, utterly unmeet or unfitting, utterly unmeet for the enjoyment of God in glory. And then he says this, such a salvation as that was never purchased by the blood of Christ. And those that seek it abuse the grace of God in Christ and turn it into lasciviousness. They turn it into a license to sin. That has been a problem as old as the gospel. People have taken the gospel and twisted the grace of God into a free license to sin. And what does Marshall say? That kind of a salvation was never purchased by the blood of Christ. That is not what Christ came to do. That is not why he died, to give us a license to sin. He died that he might sanctify and set apart for himself a people for his own glory. The believer, the one who has been made alive with Christ and born of God, hates his sin and would be freed and saved from it. That's one of the the marks of conversion. If you read uh, Repentance Unto Life, in the Shorter Catechism, we just looked at that a few weeks ago on a Sunday night recently, is that someone sees their sin, they're convicted of it, and with grief and hatred of it, turn from it to God by faith in Christ. That's what conversion itself looks like. Um, in fact, in Matthew one twenty one, in describing Jesus Christ and his coming, it says that he, you will call his name Jesus. Remember why? Why was his name Jesus? Rob mentioned the name Joshua, you know, Joshua or Yeshua this morning. That this is what this is talking about. You will call his name Jesus. Why? For he will what? Save his people from their sins. Not just save them from the penalty of their sins. Save them from their sins, including the very power and presence of that sin Uh, on that last day. Christ came to save us from not just the penalty of sin, but from our sins, period, and everything related to them. And so I'll ask this morning, do you look forward to no longer struggling with temptation and sin? Again, do you you look forward to the day when, when sin, your own sins, will no longer mar your fellowship with God? Do you look forward to being totally and completely free from not only the the penalty of sin, but from its power and its very presence as well. That's part of what makes heaven, heaven. And the older you get and the older you get in the faith, I think that becomes more and more clear uh, to us, hopefully. Part of what makes heaven, heaven is being freed from the very presence of sin, first and foremost, sin in, in us ourselves. It is an essential part of the Christian hope. And that brings us to our second Second point this morning, not only the Christian hope uh, and what that is, but that the Christian hope is an essentially purifying hope. It is the kind of hope that leads to and results in the believer's growth and sanctification and holiness. The Christian hope is not a barren hope. It is not a passive hope, but one that spurs us on and motivates us who believe to strive after holiness. That's what the Christian hope is. That's what the Christian hope results in. Look, at, look again at verse 3. John says, Everyone who thus hopes in him, that's hopes in Christ, purifies himself even as he is 
is pure. Notice he says everyone. You know, there are many different kinds of, of teachings that go by the name of Christian. I won't, I won't uh, try to list them all, but it's a very common thing in many theological circles to kind of act like there are two levels of Christianity. You know, there's, there's believers who, you know, they're in the door, they're good, they've got their fire insurance in their back pocket. And then there's those who have the second blessing or those who they've, they've chosen to make Christ their Lord. As if there was a division between those two things, the Bible knows of no such division. Everyone who thus hopes in Christ, and that word thus points us back to verse 2, doesn't it? The, the hope of being conformed to Christ's image when he returns. Everyone who thus hopes in him does what? Purifies himself, even as he is pure, simple and to the point. And keep in mind that John, it, it, we might have a hard time keeping this in mind, but John is not stating this in the form of an imperative or a command. There's an implied imperative here. There's an implied command, an, imp an implication that it is our duty to sanctify ourselves, right? That's not really what he says, even though he does imply it, and we'll touch on that uh, in a minute. Right now, he's just stating facts. He's just saying, here's what is true of every believer, everyone who has set their hope upon Christ. The great Puritan writer Thomas Manton puts it this way, he says, the main business of the apostle here is to distinguish the children of God from others. All his children, that's all God's children, all his children resemble their father in purity and holiness, which was the proposition to be proved. In other words, this was his main point starting back in, in 1 John 2.29, and he's still hammering that point home. He, he's showing, here's how you know the children of God from the children of the world and of Satan. And he'll, he'll actually touch on this quite a bit more in the rest of this epistle. But he's, he's showing us how the children of God are distinguished from those who do not believe. And this has been John's main point all along if we have the eyes to see and the ears to hear it. His aim has been to demonstrate that the true children of God who are adopted in Christ and born of his spirit will necessarily also be those who practice righteousness. Verse 29 of chapter 2. Those who do not do so, like the Gnostics that John has been dealing with throughout this letter, uh, the Gnostics and those like the Gnostics in our own day, which, you know, there's nothing new under the sun. The same errors and heresies just keep showing up with different masks on and different, different dress. Um, the Gnostics and things, those who profess a dead faith, divorced from the fruit of holiness, show by their continued life of unrepentance that they don't really know the Lord despite whatever it is they may profess to believe. Such people are yet strangers to the grace of God and the gospel. That's John's point. You know, the, the Gnostics, uh, not to beat a dead horse, so to speak, but it, it's a horse that's still kicking a little bit. What did the Gnostics teach? They, they taught this divorce of, of life from the, from the spiritual realm, and they said basically what matters is the spiritual realm, and what you do with these bodies doesn't matter. How you live, they would say how you live doesn't matter, there's almost no such thing as sin, they would say. They would say because the body's going to be done away with, which is not true, then live however you want in this body, do what you want with it, God's going to get rid of it anyway. The Bible does not teach that. The Bible says, you were bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. 1 Corinthians 6, in your body, your physical body, which belongs to God because you have been bought with a price. 
There are many who profess faith that do not possess faith. And they show that, they reveal that in how they live by not walking in fellowship with God and obeying his commandments. And one of the most important verses in scripture in this regard is Hebrews 12:14. I hope that you remind, uh, will remember this verse and commit it to memory at times. Hebrews 12:14 says, Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. What is he saying? He's talking about sanctification. Many will turn this passage into a, another passage on justification. It's not what, what the writer of Hebrews is saying at all. He's not saying you're saved by sanctification or you're saved by your works. He's saying you won't be saved without it. He's saying without holiness, that's a part of, the, that's a part of God's work of your salvation. There, there is no salvation without it. No one will see the Lord without holiness. Because God, whoever God justifies in Christ, he also does what? He also sanctifies everyone who comes to Christ. Without holiness, the NASB actually translates this, without sanctification, no one will see the Lord, which I think is actually right. Holiness of life and growth in that holiness is the distinguishing mark of a believer. It is, as the confession says, the fruit of a true and living faith. And it is a matter of the way John puts it. It is a matter of family resemblance for those who have been adopted by God and his children and been born of him by his Holy Spirit. There is fruit that comes from that. And that is first and foremost that of holiness and life and even growth in that holiness. Now, one of the things we have to recall and keep in mind going through a book like this when you stop and go through a few verses here and there as we're doing now is John's purpose in the entire letter has to be kept in mind. John is writing here to encourage you as believers and strengthen you in your assurance. He's not trying to lead you to some kind of morbid introspection. He's not trying to get you twisted into a pretzel, you know, looking in the mirror and wondering, oh, if I've done enough, you know, how many good works or how, how holy do I have to be? That's not the point at all. What he's saying is the Gnostics, false teachers, those who follow them over here, or I should say, you know, point somewhere else and nobody gets the wrong idea, right? Um, you know, they, they show they aren't really the, of the truth by not following Christ. You, as much as you struggle with temptation and sin, if you're a believer, you are trying to grow. Your desire is to be like Christ. Your desire is to obey God. And however imperfect and however, as the Heidelberg says, we in this life have a small beginning of obedience, it's still a beginning. And why is that beginning there? Because you have been born again by the Holy Spirit. And so... John wants you to be encouraged as a genuine believer uh, of, of your salvation. So I'll ask here, do you, do you sincerely make it your aim to walk with the Lord and obey his commandments? I'm not asking if, you're, if you do it perfectly. No one that has a brain would say they do, that they, they even approach perfect obedience. No one here can say or claim that. But do you make it your aim? Do you want to obey God? Have you repented of your sin and turned to God by faith in Christ? If so, then you are to be encouraged here and should be assured that you really are right with God and have been adopted as his children. That's John's point in the whole book. And so we shouldn't turn it on its head and make it something to make ourselves just feel worse. If, you're, if your genuine desire and, and, and approach in life is to seek to follow God, you should be encouraged that it's the work of God in you by the new birth, that you really are a child of, of God. There is, I would say, though, something of an imperative, at least implied, 
and an implied exhortation here as well, isn't there? John's encouragement for us, for those who believe and have been born again and adopted by God as his children, these truths should motivate us to renew our striving after holiness. It should encourage us to further purify ourselves, even as he is pure, as John says in verse 3. In his comments on this passage, uh, Manton goes on to say that John tells us uh, that there is work to be done on our part as believers. Uh, The one who is born again uh, is said to purify himself, not just to sit back passively and do nothing. He writes this, It is God's work to cleanse the heart, but we must not be idle. How can a man who is unclean by nature purify himself? In other words, God has done the pure, God has done the cleansing, and He has worked a new life in us, and it's on the basis of that that we purify ourselves. Well, last last but not least, uh, if you're sitting here listening, you're thinking, "Boy, I don't know how strong my hope is. Maybe that's why I'm struggling with 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 sin the way that I am and whatnot." I thought it would be good to look at least briefly as at you know, what we can do uh, to grow in, in holiness, to grow in the desire after holiness. If that's your desire, what are we to do? What can you do as a believer in Christ to strengthen your hope and to strengthen your, your efforts at sanctification and, and purifying of yourself? You know, even the most sanctified saints among us, and nobody would claim that, I'm sure, uh, you know, if you have a sensitive conscience, I can't help but think that you would read a passage like this or hear, even hear me preaching upon it, and think to yourself, man, I've, I've made such a small amount of progress in purifying myself. How weak is my hope that I, that I kind of stumble along the path trying to uh, walk in holiness? And it, it brings to mind in a, in a different way. Uh, the, remember the man in, in Mark chapter 9 who came to Jesus and asked him to heal his son? And Jesus said, you know, if you believe. And he said, Lord, I believe what? I believe, help my unbelief. And I think in a similar way, we too might cry out, I, I really do hope in Christ, help my lack of hope. Like I, My hope is set on Christ. It's not very strong hope when it comes to me, but it's a, it's a true hope. Help me with my lack or my weak hope. If the Christian hope is a purifying hope, which John says that it is, how can we, for a lack of better term, grow in or strengthen our grasp of that hope? That should be the thing that we want to do. The first thing is to consider it and meditate on what the scripture has to say about it, these things in passages like our sermon text this morning. That's why John wrote what he wrote, that we might look at a passage like this and think about it and be strengthened in our hope and come to understand this hope more and more and how it leads us to purify ourselves. We should pray just as that man asked Jesus, you know, Lord, I, I believe, help my unbelief. Help my lack of hope. Help me to grow in, my, in the grasp of the hope that we have, that we might have. We might see more of the fruit of it in our lives by that. Now, there, there is a command in our text, and it's not in verse 3. It might be an implied command in our text. Where is the imperative? Here's our quiz, grammar quiz. Where is the imperative in verses 1 through 3? In some translations, it's the very first word in verse 1. See. Or behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us. John tells us to see, or better yet, I think King James, behold. And what are we to behold or consider? The greatness of the love of God towards us in Christ. Specifically his love towards us 
in adopting us as his children and begetting us by his Holy Spirit in the new birth as his children. He says, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called sons or children of God. The more you and I dwell upon the greatness of the love of God towards us in Christ, towards sinners like us in Christ, uh, that, that we should have the great privilege of being called the children of God, the more we think about these things, the more I think that we will grow in our love for God and our desire to be more and more like him. The more you and I grow in our, our grasp of the promise of what we are to be when, when Christ returns in glory, the more, you and I, the more you and I understand that, the more you and I will not be content to sit back and wait for it. I think the problem in, with, with our approach to this passage, at least with me, maybe with you too, is we don't think enough about that. We don't think about, we don't have our hopes set upon the idea of, of when Christ returns and we see him as he is, that will be made like him in seeing him. Um, I'm not good at illustrations and things, but there's a, uh, a song by a country singer, some of you may know, Dirks Bentley. And he has a song called Soon As You Can. And this is a catchy lyric. Maybe you won't see why I'm bringing it up, but he says, uh, when you know who you want to spend the rest of your life with, you want to start the rest of your life as soon as you can. You know, like, when you're head over heels nuts about somebody and you get engaged, most of us don't say, well, you know, will you marry me? And then we're going to pick a date 12 years from now uh, for the wedding. You know, that, that's not a good plan. Uh, you don't have to be the next day, but don't put it off too long. You don't want to put it off too long. You, you put it off just long enough to get everything done, you know, and make sure everybody can show up. In a similar way, I know it's not the same thing. In a similar way, the return of Christ and us being conformed to his image. Like, if your heart is set on that, you're not content to wait. You're not content to, well, it'll happen when it happens. I'll be conformed to Christ's image someday, whenever. It'll be like, no, I don't want to wait. I'm going to do that now. That's, that's the implication of what John is saying. When your hope's set on that, that hope has a transforming effect. You're not content to sit on your hands and, and you know, just kind of wait around and, and, do, and do nothing. The Apostle Paul in Philippians 3 says it, I won't quote it, but he basically says, he presses on towards the goal of the upward calling of Christ Jesus. If by any means, it's a weird sounding phrase if you think about it, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. What is Paul saying? Is Paul saying I can't wait to, wait to die? No. Right? But he, he mortified his, his flesh, his, the members, uh, his sins in this, in this world, in this, in this body. But he says he wanted to attain the resurrection of the dead. What is your status going to be? What is your life going to be at the resurrection? Sinless. Perfectly conformed to the image of Christ. That's what Paul was saying. He's like, what I'm going to be when Christ returns in glory at the resurrection on that last day, I want to be that now I'm sick of waiting. I'm not going to wait. I'm going to do whatever I can in some small measure to be conformed to Christ's image now. He won't be con content to sit back and do nothing. So dwell upon the greatness of God's love for you in Christ. Think about it often. Consider the greatness of his love toward you in adopting you as his child in Christ and of the work of his spirit in making you born again, making you born of him, as John says in chapter 229. 
Think often of your home in heaven with the Lord forever and of seeing the Lord Jesus in his glory and being made like him when you see him as he is. Think on these things and it will have a transforming effect on you, setting your hope on those things in Christ. These things, these things are utterly foreign to the worldly person and the unbeliever. It's the dumbest thing they've ever heard. They don't get why you talk about these things, why you would set your hope upon these things, why you would let these things change your life. But these things are precious to every believer more and more as we grow in grace. May the Lord Jesus work in us by his Holy Spirit, the same spirit by which we are born again, and make us more and more heavenly minded and more and more fit for heaven because of it. May you and I grow in grace and grow in hope that we might learn more and more to purify ourselves more and more until Christ returns to his glory. Amen.